welcome to Pop Culture 5. I'm Thomas. I said hello and welcome to Pop Culture 5. Hey, we're trying to do a podcast over here. Everyone calm down. Jeremy, can you help me out here? Everyone calm down. Quiet down. It's time for the show. Ooh, okay. Jeez. Hello and welcome to Pop Culture 5. I'm Thomas Senna and with me as always is the Paul McCartney to my John Lennon. That was an easy one this week, Jeremy. <laughs> Truly easy one. Jeremy Dove, what's good? Not much, man. How's it going? I'm doing very well. Excited to, for this episode. Yeah, same here. Same here. And this, um, I've been getting myself hyped for this episode for a few weeks now because this is a uh, this is on Mount Rushmore of like doozies when it comes to like pop culture yeah. topics. Like you don't get much bigger than than this group than, than the Beatles. So this was one like had to get mentally right for because I'm like this. It's a lot to cover with this with this group. Yeah, we chose a a, a biggie here <laughs> in, yeah. in, in in what's our sixth episode here. Yeah, so I, I'm excited to to get your take on Beatles songs and where you stand with the group and everything like that. Uh, Pop Culture 5 is the podcast in which Jeremy and I choose the five essentials of any given topic. Last week, we discussed our five essential Seinfeld episodes. It was such a blast revisiting episodes of Seinfeld. I described it as a warm blanket, and I think the same would apply to today's topic. Again, yeah, today we are going over our five essential Beatles songs. And uh, Jeremy, as you said, like quite the undertaking for what may may very well be the most famous anything in pop culture history. Absolutely. Music, TV, you name it, in pop culture history, the Beatles might be the most famous anything. <laughs> might be the single biggest thing that pop culture has to offer, Jeremy. It, I, yeah. I said it might be, but it's up there. It's up there. I mean, you look at even within, you could say, post-2020, you know, COVID, uh, how much attention the, the Get Back documentary got on Disney Plus that Peter Jackson did. McCartney was that 321, that docuseries on Hulu with yeah. Rick Rubin, and everyone was watching that. Uh, anytime something with the Beatles comes out, it gets that kind of attention for a group that hasn't been together for over 50 years. And it still gets that attention and everyone still talks about them. And uh, for me, this is the number one thing I've had as far as debates, arguments. When it comes to my pop culture fandom career, Yeah, nothing has gotten stoked more debates or arguments more than this group. These these four men right here. So yeah. I think that's been the case for me. a lot of folks, a lot of yeah, music they, fans, especially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they've been with me for a long time in, in a lot of different ways and trying to really understand them, honestly, and understand what makes them unique and mm-hmm. what makes them on that Mount Rushmore of pop culture. Yeah. This is a band that's really special to me. Uh, uh, my mom, basically, I credit my mom uh, as far as my Beatles fandom goes. She's always been a big Beatles fan. She, I remember when I was a teenager, when the the I think it was the one or the anthology, one of those came out in the '90s, and my mom scooped it up right away and would play it around the house. And I just fell in love with all these songs and this group. And it's just uh, for me, uh, I'm I'm on the side of I, I guess that I think they're super important. I think they're probably as important as a lot of people say they are. 
so I'm probably on that side, and that stems from growing up and listening to a lot of Beatles and just being always being taken aback by what I would hear in each one of their songs. Now, I was one of those, Jeremy, who over COVID, like when Get Back came out, I parked my butt in front of my laptop and watched hours upon hours of them in the studio just kind of going over songs and talking about band dynamics. Like It was really fascinating to me, and there's very few bands who I'd uh, watch a documentary like that <laughs> about. I think you right. have to be a real, real Beatles fan because it was a slow moving, but to me it was interesting. You could see their different personalities coming through, band dynamics, uh, them working on a couple of really famous songs. So I'm, I'm the type who didn't mind watching the the Get Back documentary. I found it truly fascinating. I'm just I'm kind of a sucker for Beatles stuff. And I'm I'm a little bit in the opposite where I, I never I want everyone to listen so don't don't get upset and <laughs> get mad. I never thought the Beatles were like bad or not good or not even I never thought like they weren't great. But my whole life and I didn't grow up in a Beatles household. Mm-hmm. So my whole life though it was always the Beatles were just, it was like, they're the best, no argument, next. And I'm someone, I, I can be contrarian when it comes to that. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, we're supposed to just call them number one and move on. And it's just like, well, why? Why are they number one? And for me, it was like, there's other groups who their songs pop to me just as much, if not more than this group. Yeah. So why is it a slam dunk that they're number one? So it was kind of always... Trying to understand and like, you know, as you get older and your taste can change and it evolves being like, well, what am I missing? And maybe I don't I didn't see something back then. What I'll say to your point, though, is if you're looking at the greatest bands, I can argue that. But when it comes to just interesting, fascinating, you know, how they work as a unit, how they produce their music, like it's hard to top that and the influence that they've had over so many groups in rock music and in pop afterwards, you can't deny it. So I'm with you though, that they're not my number one, like favorite band or the greatest band. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find, like they are interesting. They're fascinating from whatever angle. And even watching, I rewatched some of get back the documentary this week. And it's fascinating to see those group dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. It's truly fascinating. I can understand. I mean, throughout music history, whatever, I can see why the Beatles wouldn't be someone's favorite band or the best music they've ever heard. My favorite band isn't the Beatles. My favorite band's Radiohead. Mm-hmm. But Radiohead definitely took inspiration from the Beatles mm-hmm. and a lot of other sources. Uh, but So the Beatles are not my favorite band. But I do think if I had to make an argument for somebody being for a group being the best band ever, that means cultural imprint that means influence that means just literally how the music sounds i would probably have to pick the beatles that's probably my most basic trait <laughs> as as like a fan of entertainment and pop culture is is thinking that the beatles probably are the greatest band to ever walk the earth it's probably my most basic trait but i would have to say they are and and listening to them over the past few weeks especially i mean i've listened to them off and on since i was a kid but especially over the past few weeks i read a book called um, dreaming the beatles by rob sheffield and so i started really listening to more and more beatles uh, more than any other uh, music and 
just every song to me, the vocal melodies, the the melodies, the harmonies, it's just so different and unique in every song. It's always interesting. Pretty much no matter what Beatles song I put on, no matter what album I put on, each new song that comes on has a different and interesting melody that sticks with me. And almost as if that the, that the, the Beatles melodies, it's almost as if like they exist in nature in a weird way. Like, mm. like I kind of think about it. I'm like, that's crazy to me. Like the same people, the same core people thought of all these melodies and harmonies and, and everything. It's almost like they're just like a fact of like nature. Like you listen to, well, we'll get into the songs here in a, in a few moments, but but to me, it's just those melodies and harmonies are so ingrained <laughs> to me that that and I'm, I'm endlessly like, oh, Paul's doing something here. Or the way they're singing here, or the way this harmony, this backing vocal comes in on this song. Like I always glean something from a different Beatles song. And the fact that they did it over a seven year period, essentially, is also what really gets me. It's astonishing their output in a short period of time. And I think that's what a lot of Beatles fans look to is like, they did this in basically seven years. It's incredible to me. It, it's, it's definitely, um, you can't take it away. I, I look at when I think of changing pop music and that influence of how it sounds, the melodies, making it into an art form. The Beatles are up there, but I look at the Beach Boys as well. I look at Motown and what Motown did. And I think that's where, I've come to grips with a lot of things, mm-hmm. which is people want to give all credit to something or no credit. And a lot of times it's like, uh, no, this particular entity deserves credit, but others also deserve a lot of credit too and shouldn't be overlooked oh, yeah. or not named. And I think that was always my issue with the Beatles was it was like they did everything. And I remember one time a friend of mine, um, I visited him at work in high school and he had a coworker who came up to him and he was like, without the Beatles, you'd have no Nike. There'd be no color. And he just went on <laughs> all these things. There'd I mean, be no this. There'd be no that. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to wear it. You have Adidas. You couldn't, there's no that without the beat. And I was just like, everything is the Beatles. Like, every, and so oh. that's kind of where it was a lot. Like, yeah, there's like, always opinions that are far gone. You know, I try not to get influenced by like the real drastic opinions of anything. If somebody just use extreme hyperbole, I take it with a grain of salt. True, but I think there's a lot of extreme hyperbole when it comes to the Beatles. Yeah, and I think and a I lot think of it's that's... deserved, honestly. Like what you mentioned is so so extreme, but I think I think I just go back to there's a lot of groups that did this. The Beach Boys had wonderful harmonies. But just the sheer uh, output, the raw amount of songs that the Beatles put out in such a short period of time, and all of them had unique melodies and harmonies, and the fact that they were able to do the out the the amount of output that they did compared to a lot of those other groups, to me is what separates it. I can point to a handful of Beach Boy songs that wow me, probably a dozen Beach Boy songs that wow me, but not like. 75 to 80 Beach Boys songs that wow me in a seven-year period. So that's where I think like that separation happens for me. No, I hear you. I think that's... And I gave that story, which was true, and obviously (laughs) that was an extreme thing. Yeah. But that was just the thing of like when you're growing up and you're constantly hit over the head with it, it can be a lot. Yeah. Um, 
What I will say is, you know, it'll be later on when this episode is released, but I was watching my Phillies lose last night to the Diamondbacks with a friend of mine, my friend Mike Prash, and he brought up something. I, you know, was talking to him that I'm going to do this episode and talking about a band and he compared it, you know, I'm a sports fan, you are too, Thomas. Mm-hmm. He's like, when you have a band and you get all the members and like for it to be where you're at the same place at the same time to want to meet and connect, you're on the same level of playing where you're at, you know, whether greatness, you know, these other members are on my level or they, you know, I'm at their level, whatever the case may be, to have that same vision, that same drive to be on that accord it's like winning a Super Bowl, and when you have what the Beatles have, it's like the Patriots just had, where you mm. have a dynasty of like, hey, like you know, to have one great album is like you won the Super Bowl, but to have multiple, you won multiple Super Bowls, and that's mm. and he brought that up, and I go, you know, that's a great way to look at it, to have everything because you need timing, you need luck, you need all those things to kind of work in your favor to get a band, all these people to be on one accord. And we know that's also where the Beatles are famous for was that for a good stretch at the end, they were still producing music, but they really weren't on one accord. Right. And it's almost like I can take Ringo out of it, but at least three of the four group members were kind of producing music. It was like they were solo artists within the Beatles. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel. And to me, that is interesting and i kind of struggle with that because sometimes like that's a knock because it does seem it's all over the place and george has his and john has his and paul has his and i feel like that but it's hard to stay on an accord and especially for as popular as they were no one minus like elvis and maybe a little bit of sinatra we hadn't seen a phenomenon like that so it was a lot for them yeah yeah absolutely those those are all really good points i I actually wanted to make sure that I acknowledged acts and music that influenced the Beatles because yeah, the Beatles weren't the ground floor of interesting pop music. Like the Beatles were heavily influenced by girl groups that came Mm -hmm. before them as far as like those harmonies and melodies. And so the way the girls sang and the way the, the writers at the studios, the the types of uh, melodies and stuff that they would put together, the Beatles were heavily influenced by a lot of those girl groups from like the late fifties and early sixties. So I do want to acknowledge absolutely like as, as a Beatles fan, as Beatles fans, uh, there's a lot of us who do acknowledge like before the Beatles, this is what the Beatles were influenced by and listening to. So you do have a a lot of that really amazing pop music that started coming out in the late fifties and early sixties that the Beatles loved. And they wanted yeah. to uh, to emulate a lot of that. So and with Chuck so, Berry and mm-hmm. Little Richard and Carl yeah. Perkins, especially and like Elvis. A lot of that rock and roll, yeah. Mm-hmm. They were really, you know, really big. Roy Or Orbison, different groups like that. Yeah. You know. So it wasn't just the Beatles. I'm like a I'm pretty a level headed Beatles fan, <laughs> I think, all things considered. So I did want to acknowledge that uh, before we delved into everything that that we do acknowledge the Beatles had their own influences and a lot of amazing artists at that Mm -hmm. i did want to uh at the end of the show just kind of a a little tease i did want to explore the idea of hyperbole in pop culture a little bit more with you at the end because i think it's a fascinating thing it's always fascinated me 
So after we do our five essential Beatles songs, I did want to explore that maybe a little bit more. No you. problem. I'm down with that. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm looking forward to that. But I think we should get into it. Our, uh, I'm ready. Five essential Beatles songs as decided by Deremy and Thomas. So how it works, I'm going to set up the rules for this. So we, like I said, we're coming up with our list of five essential Beatles songs. It's not necessarily top five essential. I think it's songs we feel that are essential somehow and songs we feel like talking about on this episode. Because to me, I don't know. I had like, I have a Beatles playlist that has like 50 to 60 songs that I'm like, that I kind of like went through and pared it down from there. So these are just five essential songs that we want to justify right now and feel like talking about this episode. Uh, Since I'm the host this week, I have three choices. Deremy will have two choices, but he does have a veto if he chooses to use it. And I would not be surprised if he did. If you listen to our (laughs) Spike Lee episode, Deremy exercised his veto powers and said, no, Thomas, you will not be putting 25th Hour on our list of essential Spike Lee movies. And I said, all right, fair enough. I'm, I'm tough, but I'm fair. I'm yeah, tough, no, I but think I'm that fair. Was fair. Yeah, so I'm I fair. have not used my veto power. Um, I'm sure it's coming. We'll, it'll, we'll all see the day when that happens. Uh, but Deremy has his veto power on this episode. I can't wait. I can't wait because um, there's so many ways we can go with this. I know this is one I can almost guarantee we'll have a part two. We could have a part three, oh, honestly. Yeah, yeah we can. Um, and it's it still, you can go so many different ways, but um, it still can be used because there mm-hmm. are some some tracks that I'm like, uh, you got to really convince me okay. that that's going to make the essential Beatles list. Yeah, but there's I'm one down. that I'm pretty sure that I'm going to pick that I'm excited to try to convince you about. I'll have to wait and see. Okay. All right, so I get the first choice. So coming into this, I wanted to, when I was looking at thinking about essential Beatles songs, I wanted to cover different types of sounding songs, different aesthetics. I wanted to cover who wrote the song and who was kind of behind the song and make sure kind of different voices on the Beatles got acknowledged. So with my first choice, I'm going to pick one that's a little more one of their jangly pop songs. One of the earlier ones, it's more straightforward pop, but I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting jangly pop song. It's written by John Lennon, and it's from 1965. It's Help. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. I recently looked at Rolling Stone's they came out with a list, I believe, in 2010 of their top 100 Beatles songs. So I'm probably mm-hmm. going to cite that just for sort of a reference to, okay. to another publication. So Help was ranked 15th on Rolling Stone's list of Beatles songs. This one, to me, Deremy, is interesting because it's, it's a John Lennon song. Lennon and McCartney were always acknowledged as co-writers, but John Lennon did have, have uh, the bulk of the, uh, the writing in Help. And this is basically John dealing with his the quick success of the Beatles. It was almost his literal cry for help as far as like dealing with this success and everything. And John says that he loved this song because he did put a lot of heart into it. And this was an early-ish John song that, yeah. that he was expressing himself uh, in a lot of ways. 
And like I said, it's a more interesting version of a lot of their earlier jangly kind of pop songs. Uh, great harmony with Paul and George. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Super interesting melody. Um, so those are just kind of the blanket general reasons why uh, help is my first pick for an essential Beatles song. You're not going to get a veto from me. It is one that it it's not a favorite of mine, I'll be quite honest, but it is one of those songs, and especially in that era of the Beatles, they're on that verge, I feel, before they start to transform a little bit. It's definitely one of their more known songs in that pop, kind of rock slash boy bandy like era yeah. that the Beatles have. Boy band but is it, a good way to put it too. Yeah, like and uh I think that's one of the ones that I, I doesn't hit, but it is a known song and it's one of the for a group that has a lot of popular songs that a lot of people know, it's up there. And it's up there for that era. And it's kind of one of the ones and I could be off, you might disagree, Thomas. Mm-hmm. There it's fun for me sometimes to hear, especially with Lennon and McCartney. It's obvious to hear like, oh, that's a John song or that's a Paul song. This is one of those ones where it's a John song, but if you would have asked me without just only quick reflex, I would have said, oh, this is more Paul, right. but it's actually a John song. And yeah. that's kind of what I feel like it's, uh, that's why I like it. It's different. It's not the typical John that you would hear. Oh, I, I definitely agree with you. That's part was one of the reasons why it stood out to me so much is it's not a stereotypical John Lennon song. It's I think it's kind of cool to know that John was the primary writer of Help. Like you just kind of don't think so. That's a very good point, Jeremy. And just like a couple things that really stick out from uh, from Help as far as just musically and how it sounds. I just love when the guitar comes in at a perfect time in the chorus, like after the line. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you. Just how they arrange all their music and how they arrange these pop songs is just you can just kind of hear Paul and John and them going, no, we need to have the guitar come in at this exact part. We need to have George's backing heart vocals come in at this exact part. Like I could just tell that they've put so much thought into this and and, and it makes for a wonderful listening experience. Like it's an example of every element of the song working well with every other element of the song. I agree. I agree. And that's one thing you, you know, I will give all of them, honestly, was the discipline that they had when it comes to their craft and the music, but the way they were so intricate with every little detail. And a lot of great artists are like that. Mm -hmm. Like the Beatles aren't alone in that, but just the way you see it and the way it takes a lot of, and I think toward the end it got to them, but it takes a lot of putting your ego aside to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to bring this vocal harmony here. It takes a lot of ego, like putting your ego aside, but also takes a lot of genius too to being like, hey, I know, and the four of us know, maybe the public will just hear John singing or must hear Paul singing or on some tracks hear George, but I know how important this line is. I know how important this vocal is right here or adding the, the drum right here, or keeping everyone in tune. That's one thing I, I have respected more and more about all four of them is 
putting the ego aside and these little fine intricate things that us as even people who are musicians but aren't the four of them may not pick up on but they know yeah. and make put the song from good to great yeah i think people underestimate how hard it is to make a good catchy pop song because mm-hmm. because pop songs people think oh it's just so simple and it, they, it sounds like there's nothing to it but to make something that that's that that catchy and that accessible sound really good that takes a lot of talent we've seen that like I mentioned you. You mentioned Little Richard, Chuck Berry, a lot of the groups before the Beatles. Afterward, like Michael Jackson was amazing at that. Prince, mm-hmm. Madonna. So we've had these artists throughout the years that just know how to write pop songs and they make it sound simple. And that's part of where the genius comes in. Just in anything, like Michael Jordan, he he made it look so easy. He made basketball look easy, and right. that was part of the genius of his game. And right. that's and that's what I see with a lot of these pop these people who write these pop songs is it sounds simple. You listen to Help and it's like okay, that's a fun little jangly pop song, boy bandy. But if you like listen to how it's arranged, it takes a lot of talent, a lot, a lot of genius to it arrange does. something like that. And and that'll be the first thing I'll say as someone who respects the Beatles. I do like the Beatles. I don't love the Beatles, mm-hmm. but one of my I critiquing myself was. For a lot of years, that era of the Beatles kind of knocking it. And it's not my favorite era of the Beatles, Mm -hmm. but as I've gotten older and, you know, matured in my music listening, I respect how hard and how intricate and how much talent you need to produce those kind of records. And that is something I'm like, I have to rechange and reevaluate how I listen to that era. Yeah, I think I think it would serve a lot of people good just to for pop music in general to give a lot of songs that maybe we've looked at and scoffed at initially to give a lot of those songs a uh, a second look you and i have a shared interest in like 80s songs what people call it cheesy 80s songs mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff is so well crafted absolutely and i think people need to put some respect on a lot of those 80s songs names because <laughs> a lot of that stuff is really well written and well crafted and it sounds simple but it's not Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't veto that. I can't awesome. Veto that. Yes. I might go a whole episode with uh, unscathed here. We'll see everybody. You might. You <laughs> might. I think you could, man. I, I it, It's going to be really, you, you, it's going to be really hard to pick one that's not essential. It's almost like, I just want to see like, ooh, like how, like, could you pick one that's like, okay, I didn't think it'd be that high up for you, but all right, you, you trying to change my mind. I got to re-listen to this. Like, But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Um, (laughs) All right. So we have Help is the first, our first pick for essential Beatles songs. Dare what is your first choice? Well, so this one is special for me for a lot of reasons. But I think for me, there's a lot of, when you look at greatest or best or your favorite, I think we all have a criteria but there's different things you can kind of mix into that combo and get something. So a lot of times the reasons why growing up the Beatles weren't my favorite was because it was like, if I do best on best against other artists, like songs that like, ooh, they just stop me in my tracks when I hear it. Like, oh man, a lot of other artists had more of those than the Beatles did for me. So that's where it was like, ah, that's tough. But... The one I'm going to name now is the number one for me that it stopped me in my tracks. And I'm like, what is this? 
what's coming out of these speakers. And as time goes on, I'm more and more amazed by it. And I think not only is it the most, and we don't rank them here on Pop Culture 5, but if I were to put a rank in, this is the number one most essential. I think it's their best. I think it's my favorite. It just hits all of it. And that's Eleanor Rigby. Look at all the lonely people. I can give you a handful of songs that hit me by the Beatles that were, I wasn't, I, I like it, but I'm like, okay, like, this is one of the few where I stopped and I'm like, what is my, what am I hearing? And Eleanor Rigby is one of like only a couple songs that Lennon and McCartney argued about, about who wrote what and <laughs> yeah. like what the credit was for. But I think this song is just, it's a masterpiece, honestly. And I don't use that word. You know me, Thomas. I don't use that word lightly. But it truly is. And for how it's only two minutes, eight seconds, and to tell a story, I think it's like this story is like a great short story you could use in literature. Father Mackenzie writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working, donning his socks. Having, you know, with Father Mackenzie and Eleanor Rigby and their stories crossing over. At this time in the mid-60s, to have a pop song, there had been sad pop songs before. They weren't the first to do that. But a song that talks about loneliness and despair, and to pass that over, I mean, it was number 11 in the U.S., but number one in Britain's top 100. It's just something that blows my mind. And to have that, and they're, they're not playing any instruments. It's that string quartet coming mm -hmm. in, and just the Beatles singing, and... Ah, look at all the lonely people. And that's George, George came up with that idea. Like, it just hits on so many things. And I think this song is also so essential because we talked about it with help in that boy band era. With this song starts the transformation of the Beatles doing more experimental songs and doing coming out of like their, their comfort zone and really changing pop music and what we think of pop music forever. And to me, it started with this album, the Revolver album, but specifically this song. So that's why I have to give it to Eleanor Rigby as my choice for an essential. Yeah, I love this choice. Rolling Stone had it 22nd on their list. Crazy. I think, uh, yeah, I think if, if I was to do my own list of just favorites, Eleanor Rigby would be higher than 22nd. I've always loved this song. And what's striking, you had mentioned the strings, and that's always been something totally striking to me. The harmonies in this song are just wonderful, and they sort of just creep up. Like the harmonies just kind of fade up just a little bit and it's just and the, the harmonies fit the strings too it's almost right. that same tempo uh with both of them and you'd mentioned two two minutes and eight seconds and that's the beatles for the most part there's songs here and there you could point to where they noodled around a little bit or maybe they should have ended the song a couple minutes earlier but for the most part they're really efficient <laughs> in their songs mm -hmm. they made amazing songs in like two two and a half minutes 
and, and those are just amazing pop songs. Eleanor Rigby sounded different from a typical pop song, but it did have pop structure yeah. to it. Absolutely. And that was part of the genius behind that song. No, and to me, also part of the genius is, you know, being influenced by Psycho, the movie Psycho, and that e e e, and like yeah. that kind of coming into play is really just amazing. But I think it's also, you know, what I'll give the the Beatles. They were the first. You know, now we see it in all different facets with pop culture being used in the world of like academia and having classes on it and different scholars talking. The Beatles were the first I ever saw of that for me growing up where like they, you know, I first time I heard like pop culture class, you know, at a university was like someone talk about taking Beatles, like a Beatles 101. And I'm like, oh, they have a class like that. And to me, this song is something that is like the top song I would say you should use to talk about them and the fact that the loneliness, the despair, something that everyone feels then, now, forever, and that just like, it's not one that just ends with like, oh, everything's good again. It talks about like that loneliness, that feeling like you're by yourself, those sad stories. And I feel like to have that short story kind of come together and these two sad people, you know, Father McKenzie and Eleanor Rigby and then, him doing her sermon of her feet like it's just hits so deep and you can pick that apart of what that means in so many different ways i think it's just it's brilliant and it i can't blame you know i know john is gone now but for this being one of like the two songs that they kind of argued about who did what this mm-hmm. is like yeah i would want credit for this too because it's just to me their most genius work yeah it's an interesting writers yeah absolutely it's an interesting choice too because it came at a pivotal time uh with the band as you mentioned they were going from a lot you know they're very always they're always going to be pop influence but they started getting a little more experimental this song came out in 1966 it was off of revolver mm-hmm. uh which by the way if you were to pull a whole big group of beatles fans i bet revolver would be the album that people picked as their favorite which so, has changed and, yeah it probably changes over the years what did you what do you think well um, i i think now you're right. I think mm-hmm. for a long time, Sergeant Peppers yeah. was yeah. like what everyone would just say. And I'm kind of glad it's changing because I didn't agree with that. I I think Revolver, in my opinion, is better. But mm-hmm. I think for so long, it was like Sergeant Pepper, Sergeant Pepper. And I agree with you. Like now, Revolver's getting that that just do. Yeah. And this this is probably the highlight of, of Revolver, I would yeah. say. For me, at least, uh, this is yeah. This is such a good choice, Jeremy. I love it. I love it, and it's something that, um, like I said, there's not a lot of Beatles songs that just hit me like whoa. There's a lot that I said I like, or that's that's a good one, but this is one of the handful that I was like, I it just hit me on so many levels that even if you would have picked it, I'd be like, hey, darn it. But I would have been able to, like, let's go, let's talk about it. But I'm glad I was able to put it on there because it's just, it's unbelievable. Oh, wonderful. I love this choice. So we have Help as the the one that I picked. That was my first choice. And we have Eleanor Rigby as our second choice. That's Jeremy's first. So two essential Beatles songs, three left. And it is back to me with my second choice. I'm going to go with a, a later era Beatles. It's going to be from 1969. And I'm going to give George Harrison a little love. I'm going to pick a George Harrison song here. 
to me, it's a, a more grounded song amidst a very experimental part of their career. Mm-hmm. Um, it means a lot to me, and it's Here Comes the Sun. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. George wrote this. He was feeling a little bit exhausted by being in the band around this time, quite frankly. Yeah. Some disagreements were starting to pop up more and more between George and pretty much Paul, mostly Paul, but some John. So George was just kind of feeling exhausted about being in the band. Um, this song actually came about because the, Be- the Beatles had a business meeting and George decided to skip it because it was a nice sunny day. He just wanted to enjoy the day. He was tired of the business aspect of it. He skipped this business meeting and just noodled around on his guitar enjoying the day. And he started writing this song that day. Here comes the sun. He was also going through a lot personally as well, George Harrison was. And it wasn't just his slight discontent with the band. He had had surgery around that time. He had found out that his mother had cancer. So all these things were piling up on George around that time. And so the song's kind of about like how times are difficult. So he's talking about how it's a difficult time and everything, but the sun is coming. It's on the horizon. Things will get better. Here comes the sun. It's going to get better. So it's a very personal song for George. And I just love, you know, showing George Harrison, his songwriting talents and everything. This is one of the a very beloved Beatles song. I think Rolling Stone had it 28th, which is a little low for me. So many great songs to choose from. It's kind of hard to nitpick a lot of these lists, but here comes the sun is my pick. Deremy, what say you? Uh, can't argue it. I think it's definitely a beautiful song. And it's one of those ones I feel like it's kind of, and I hate using these terms, I've said it before, but you heard it for a long time, like at least growing up in the 90s, too, like I heard it all the time. And it kind of like went away a little bit. And now I feel like it went from like being overplayed to now it's underplayed. Like I don't <laughs> hear it as much now when it comes yeah. to Beatles. And now Beatles, like, you know, people playing that song. And I just think it is just a beautiful song. And I like the word you use, grounded. It is a very grounded song. And it's one that I think it sounds simple. And I can understand people say that. But I think there's nothing wrong with it being simple. And I think there's beauty in the simplicity of it. And I think there's beauty in the honesty and the vulnerability that George is you know, bringing out in these lyrics. So I can't argue this, and I think it's one of George's best, and I think mm-hmm. it is. To me, I will put it in the top 10, honestly, for Rolling well, Stones. Like, I will put it in the top 10. So yeah. no veto here, man. Yeah, this song makes me feel good, too. It's an optimistic-sounding song, and I think that was the intent by George. It's so optimistic, and I love the way his voice, if you notice throughout the song, his voice gets a little bit more chipper. He perks up a little bit more. It kind of ramps up throughout the song. And especially when he sings, I feel that ice is slowly slowly melting, his voice perks up a little bit more. There's more optimistic urgency there by the end of the song. Darling, I feel that ice is 
George is sort of like trying to get other people to believe that things are going to get better. But to me, by the end of the song, George actually convinced himself that yeah. things are going to get better. You can mm-hmm. see hear that transformation in his voice. These are little things that I pick up on when I listen to the Beatles. <laughs> These little no. thoughts that come into my head when I'm listening to how the music's arranged, how they're singing it, the melodies. I just that's, that's why this is a band that the like, even though I've heard Here Comes the Sun hundreds of times, there's always stuff that I can pick from these songs that I've heard hundreds of times. And this one's such a, a, a good example to me. I like that you gave it because I feel like George, I, I think they knew John and Paul, his talents, like that he was emerging and he wanted to evolve as an artist in the band and ultimately all of them solo. But uh, I feel like sometimes George has it where it was like they kind of like, they overlooked it all. Oh, okay, George. Like, he kind of like, yeah, George. Okay, okay. And then I, I love that. Like from that, he would find ways to create some of their masterpieces. And mm-hmm. I think, man, you got to give him props that. And this may sound like a knock on Lennon and McCartney, and it's not. But they had a lot of great hits. But they had so many whacks at it, so many tries. George's batting average. And sorry for the sports reference, if people don't love it, <laughs> but his batting average is through this, the roof. Like. For as limited a tries to write his songs as he had, how many just classics that George came up with? Like, I think that just blows me away of anything. Like, he didn't have that many chances, but when he got his chance, home run, home run, home run. Like, George Harrison. Yeah, you're so right. And that the Get Back documentary, to me, shows an interesting look at the dynamics involving George uh, around that time. He left the band. Yeah. He just straight up left the studio and nobody nobody heard from him. And, and there's an interesting moment where John and Paul are actually meeting off camera, but the mics are still picking yep. them up. And John and Paul are talking about what do we do about George? So that was just like such a real moment for me. And that was George just being like, you know what? Screw this. And I think most of it was directed toward Paul because quite frankly, Paul was like the he was almost the drill sergeant of the group. In a way, he kind of kept them together in a I, lot of ways. Yeah. And I, and I think especially because... That scene in the movie where John's telling Paul, you're the boss now, and Paul's like, no, no, it's still you, it's still you. So I wonder, do you think, was Paul always the drill sergeant throughout the whole time, or in that later era did Paul take that yeah. that like mark or that label, I guess? kind of think it morphed into that yeah. a little bit. In a lot of ways, in their early career, it seemed like George Martin was the one. Who, who made a lot of those decisions and I don't not necessarily songwriting, but as far as like the direction of the band, like George Martin was kind of the one who told them what to do. He's the one. Uh, it was either him or one of their other managers who told them to start wearing the suits and to stop wearing leather and and be more like family was that friendly. Epstein? Was that Brian was, Epstein? Yeah, it was Brian Epstein. So Brian yeah. Epstein even like and George Martin were kind of the two early on who uh, had that say. But I think as it morphed, it seemed like Paul really grew into like the de facto leader of the group. And even though he told John like, no, no, it's not, you know, I'm not that way. It's still you. But when it came down to like brass tacks, we got to like get to it and write a song. Paul slid into that conductor mode quickly Mm -hmm. with probably maybe without even realizing he was doing that and potentially alienating the other members of the Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was, uh, it it was interesting because it's like, Maybe, but like it kind of reminds me, you know, another great docuseries that came out during, you know, pandemic time, like The Last Dance, where it's like when it comes to leadership, there's multiple ways of leadership. Mm -hmm. And then people argue, well, 
Is there a right way or wrong way? Is, is it wrong if you get success? I feel like, yeah, you still can get success, but it can be the wrong way. And I think Paul is interesting in that regard because he did create a lot of songs and he knew how he wanted to hear it, but yet you're in a group. So then you need to be the leader, but still make it like a democracy, not a dictatorship. And it's a hard balancing act for anyone to do. Yeah. But I, I, I understand Paul, but I also understand, especially George, like where it's like, now I want to give my input too. Exactly. I respect that it's your song, but I have ideas too. That's a good, really good parallel between Paul and Michael Jordan. Honestly, yeah. very different uh, leadership styles compared to a lot of people in their fields. But yeah, that that's an interesting way to to look at leadership. I don't think Paul. I think he had the best intentions, but right. I just don't think he realized what he was doing because it was in his nature just to like get excited about his vision and here's how it should sound and Ringo you come in here and this is how I want it and I think he just got so excited that he didn't realize what he was doing and also that's how he wrote songs so he went music first mm-hmm. and then the lyrics it was like just say whatever and we'll fill it in yeah we'll change the know? name of the city that we're referencing we'll change yeah. this or that but the melodies what's is what is key here yeah right right absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah. so we got help eleanor rigby and here comes the sun Three of our five essential Beatles songs. So, Mr. Deremy Dove, lay it on me. What's your pick? Well, you gave me a little bit of a heart attack there. (laughs) But I survived it because George Harrison, for a long time, uh, has been... He's my favorite Beatle. I think he's the most interesting of the Beatles, just as a person. I think George is very fascinating. Not that the other three members aren't fascinating, too. But I think for me, just George is so fascinating as a person, you know, him becoming, you know, we talk of leadership, I feel like in his own way, he became a leader toward that end, you know, when that journey they had to India, you know, especially after, you know, Brian Epstein had died and, you know, George and going to India and bringing, you know, TM, Transcendental Meditation to America, you know, why it's so popular now, you can really look to that trip that George led and the Beatles went on. And bringing that back over to America of why TM is popular in 2023, which to me is mind blowing and fascinating. Like just the impact that the Beatles have had on society. That's a big one. And I feel he became a spiritual leader for them, you know, in a lot of ways. And I feel to what you said about the first song, you said help. It was overwhelming. A lot of times you hear the Beatles, the four of them were by themselves and all they had was each other. They were in a fishbowl. Mm-hmm. So uh, they all found different ways to how to deal with it. And George kind of went back to, I love the word you use, being grounded and going to spirituality and what really matters to him. And, you know, some LSD and other stuff. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I say all that because I, I, you know, we talk about Paul and John, but there's two other members of the group as well. And George is special. And to me, I look at, my song that I'm going to put up while my guitar gently weeps. I just have to do it. I because love it. It's just so special. I think it's one of the great guitar songs in rock history. 
And this, I, I'm fortunate, I'm grateful that I was able to put the two down. There's two songs that I remember where I first heard them, and I was like, whoa, what is that? And I got to say them both, Eleanor Rigby and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And I think it's just amazing that George, wanted the, on the White Album, wanted this song, and Paul, John, the rest of the Beatles weren't really helping him. So what does he do? Which I love, I love, I love. He says, all right. Okay, guys, you're not helping me. I'm going to go talk to my boy, probably one of the five greatest guitarists to ever live, Eric Clapton. And I'm going to ask him to come on here, and he's going to bring the house down. And Which takes out the ego, because George is one of the great guitarists of all time, too. But he, hey, who can make this guitar weep? My man Eric Clapton. Yeah. And Clapton was nervous about coming on, because it's the Beatles, and no one ever does that. And he didn't even want credit on the, the song. Yeah. But just, I mean, with the way that song just opens, that doom, da doom, da doom, I just love it. <laughs> and then just when Clapton's just that solo, just him ripping on it, man, it is such a deep song. And such a great, just, like I said, I think when George passed away, it's the one that so many great artists went to of like, man, to show like George's genius. And hey, here comes the sun, something. George has a, the tax man, a lot of great songs, but this was the first one that everyone went to. And I think rightfully so. Even to connect it, it gave me one of the great Prince moments when they inducted George after he had passed to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist. And you have Prince and Tom Petty and Danny Harrison and Steve Winwood up there, you know, jamming to this song. And Prince just lets it rip. And I mean, just mm -hmm. dominates. And I, it just is mind blowing right there. So I have to put While My Guitar Gently Weeps for my second choice of essential Beatles songs. Yeah. And we don't have to get into how Eric Clapton paid his guy back for uh, letting yeah. him be on the song. That's yeah. a whole other a can whole of other worms thing. that I guess that Very, sparked Layla, another great yes. song. But Yes. <laughs> Come on, Very Eric. strange. I know. Yeah. Very, very strange. Very strange. <laughs> that um, Eric, Patty, George relationship. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, was, that was very strange. So, gosh, this was my backup George song, Jeremy. Okay. I, I was kind of like the whole, the last couple weeks... I've been, I made a playlist. I, I've even ran my playlist by my wife. I'm like, so we're doing this episode and these are the songs I've narrowed it down to. And I don't know. And then for my George song, I was like, do I go with Here Comes the Sun or Why My Guitar Gently Weeps? So I was kind of like having these conversations with myself. And because I just love this song. And uh, Rolling Stone has it 10th. So they have it as a top 10 Beatles song. And I think they hit it absolutely correctly. I think this is, in my opinion, this is one of my 10 favorite Beatles songs. My mom, mm -hmm. who's, who I reference as a huge Beatles fan, I let her um, borrow the Rob Sheffield book after I finished it, and she read mm -hmm. it and loved it. And she posed a question to me. She said, you know, when she was growing up, she loved the White Album. And okay. she said she would have conversations with people about, like, everybody had their, their one song that, that they felt like there was that, that was theirs from the White Album. So she asked me what mine was, and I thought about it, and I said... I think it's while my guitar gently weeps, and my mom looked at me and said, "That's mine too." Yeah. yeah. So that's something that my mom and I share. That's this awesome. is our that's white really album cool. song. That's the really cool. Yeah, the guitar is just so great. Mm -hmm. 
did take inspiration from his uh, religion and a lot of the spirituality that he was pursuing at the time. This was a very personal song to George. Um, this is a great example of just the Beatles guitar work. And I know Eric Clapton had a lot to do with it, but George was no slouch himself. And just the, the, the straddled the line between uh, experimental and accessible really well, which not a, quite honestly, starting at Sgt. Pepper's, a lot of Beatles songs were experimental and not that accessible. Some Absolutely. of them were hard to listen to around that time. Absolutely. Yeah. So I agree. I, yeah. And, uh, but this one straddles that line perfectly between interesting, experimental, but also very accessible and listenable. So while my guitar gently weeps, wonderful pick. Gosh, it was almost mine. Okay, I know. I was worried. I I thought <laughs> I, Eleanor Rigby. I thought I had this. Is the one when you were talking? I was like, uh oh, he might he might take it. But I I think um, you know, just it conveys it. Not that the others weren't in their own way, but George was a sensitive soul. And you look at when this song came out, nineteen sixty eight, and what's happening you know, in the world and in, in, in the US, just so much, you know, craziness and so much chaos. And I think George just wanting that universal love and everyone to kinda of, and he's weeping for that. Like why can't we have it? But it, it's kinda of like out of his grasp. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing. Like you really feel that from George. Like great emo song. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> someone I saw somewhere where they were like, which I'm kinda of glad George is uh, Gen Z's favorite Beatle, and I'm like, right on. Like, George is getting his just due here. That. Yeah, I, he's my favorite. I mean, I want to ask, you know, because you, know, mm-hmm. you said in the opening, John, you know, you're John, I'm Paul. Is, is Lennon your favorite Beatle, or? I think for most of my life, it was Lennon, because I really especially gravitated toward, like, Imagine, and instant karma kind of things like some of his solo stuff was just piqued my interest a little bit more than some of Paul's solo stuff or George's solo stuff. I love George, but I don't want to mention a, I got my mind set on you. I don't like that song. Yeah. That was, the, so we don't have to mention that. We'll, 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 t- we'll give George a mulligan for, for that song. Yeah. I got, I, I agree with that. I do. I'm with you. But uh, I think for the most part, it's been John, although I've come around to Paul quite a bit over the years. I've had the good fortune of seeing him twice in concert. Right. Uh, my wife no and surprise. I saw Paul Yeah, five years ago at the Austin City Limits Music Festival. We saw Paul headline. He's outstanding in concert. We had you jamming and he turned and you nodded me. and like was Bruce Springsteen there and you like tied up Bruce? Or, <laughs> Jeez, I'm just wondering which star... Which okay. rock star were you with that, like, <laughs> I was waiting for you to be like, Paul said, come backstage, you well, know, afterwards. It wasn't Paul. It was Mick Jagger that spotted my wife and I. Okay. And was like, That's do true. you want to meet Paul? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's like, yeah. I've met so many people before. And I Paul said, McCartney, I guess. So. I said Bruce, but I should have said Mick. How, that, <laughs> that's on me. My bad. I come on, man. Mick. Yeah. So I'm better than that. Yeah. So so yeah. So we we saw Paul McCartney just have a amazing headlining set five years ago, and I saw him at Coachella in 2009 headline, and I just like he's put on two brilliant performances to me. So I've come around on Paul, but if I had to really choose, I don't know. I've always vibed with John Lennon a little bit more. Okay. No, it's interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think um, 
we talked, we did Seinfeld, and you know, you could have any of those last mm-hmm. week, and any of those four, you can kind of pick, and they're a unit, but they're also their own individuals, and I think the Beatles represent that maybe better than any group in music, where it's it's a group, but it's like their their own four individuals, own personalities, and you see that in just every facet of the group. So I, it's always fun and interesting to hear different people who love the Beatles and who is their favorite. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I know Beatles fans have that question constantly, and Rob Sheffield in his book. Dreaming the Beatles even has a whole chapter dedicated to, are you a Paul, more of a Paul or more of a John? And there's reasons for that and everything. And and so, uh, yeah, he had a whole chapter dedicated to that I found fascinating. So I love I love your choice, man. And so we have four out of our five essential Beatles songs. We have Help, Eleanor Rigby, Here Comes the Sun, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Now I have a decision, Jeremy. Yes, sir. <sighs> All right. I think I know what I'm going to do. So I want to quote um, Michael Keaton in Batman from 1989. Okay. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. <laughs> Let's get nuts. All right. Okay. <laughs> so I actually felt it was important to have a Beatles song that's a little less in the zeitgeist as other Beatles songs, especially as the Beatles songs that we've already chosen in our first four essentials mm-hmm. here. I thought it was important to have a, maybe a lesser known song, mm-hmm. but it's still really universally beloved and respected amongst Beatles fans. You bring this song up and it's like, oh yeah, I love that song. And people okay. just, I've seen Reddit discussions uh, about this particular song and everybody's like, oh yeah, this, oh, this is a great song. Like, so it's like universally like beloved amongst Beatles fans. Rolling Stone had it 47th. So not bad. Still like a top 50 from Rolling Stone. It's a Paul McCartney song, so I'm getting in Paul McCartney here. And I, it's one, Jeremy, that I'm going to probably ask you to listen to mm-hmm. before rushing to, to judgment. So, And, I, and I'll, I want you to pair it with another song. So I'm giving you some quick homework here okay. in the podcast. And uh, if, you, if anybody listened to our 90s hip-hop episode, uh, we paused the podcast for like 10 seconds in your time out a few minutes in real time and i mm-hmm. listened to a song that Jeremy picked um, but i'm gonna actually ask Jeremy to listen to to this song and then maybe some of another song okay. because i think the song that i'm gonna pick and it's things we said today it was released in 1964 um, the song is things we said today you say you will love me if i have to go You'll be thinking of me Somehow I will know To me, it's a good example of a Beatles song that seemed to influence another band. There's almost like a damn near one-to-one comparison. We talk about the Beatles' influence on a lot of bands, but to me, this is like you could really see it in this song. It's a beautiful song to me. Like I said, Beatles fans love things we said today, but I want you to... Dare me if you could listen to things we said today and then listen to some of Nirvana's About a Girl. Not the 
unplugged version listen to the, the one from bleach from with well, the one from bleach and you don't have to listen to the whole thing just to to get the sense so listen to things we said today listen to however much you want to about a girl and then we can come back and then chat a little bit about that, this that's, choice that's a deal I'll, I'll do that right now then <laughs> Jeremy just uh, finished his impromptu homework that I gave him uh, in I like in it. this podcast. So, Jeremy, uh, I'll open the floor to you. Your thoughts? It's I'll be honest. It's it's one song that I hadn't heard before. So okay. I was thinking the same thing. But my honorable mention was a song that like people know, but it's not in like you said the zeitgeist that like the first songs you think of. But um, this is one that I hadn't heard. So I'll, okay. It was one that Exciting. I would have definitely, yeah, I definitely would have had to have uh, say I need to listen to, and it's definitely it's a really really good song. And I now let me ask you, uh-huh. the comparison to about a girl mm-hmm. is that something like have you heard that like before? Is that like your own kind of like finding like the connected? I knew it was a Beatles influenced song, but I didn't think I never heard about like what song. Yeah, I n- right. I never like. I don't think Kurt ever said that that he took influence from this particular song, but it's just something that was always striking to me. And one of those, honestly, like I had thought about it. I'm like, this sounds like where, where have I heard this about a girl? And then I looked it up, and there's been people online who have made that direct comparison okay. too. Okay, yeah. So yeah, in in discussions on Reddit of things we said today. And invariably, you'll find people say, "Yeah, listen to about a girl by Nirvana," and you can see the connection there so i don't know if it was a one-to-one but i know kurt was very much influenced by the beatles a lot of those nirvana songs had beatles melodies and this and that but did you so do could you see the comparison so you listen to things we said today and then you listen to some of about a girl or yeah so uh about a girl is a song both versions the unplugged and Mm -hmm. bleach i know very so i did play i got about like a minute into it i knew that but things you said today i played the whole song and it was one that i didn't know and it's a very, uh, especially for that time frame of the Beatles, really nails it. I, I'm not going to veto. I really wow. like. I really enjoy it. I'm not just saying that. I would if I didn't. I would be straight up with you. But okay, I know you would. Yeah, that, that, that that's that, one I I really do me. enjoy. Yeah, wow. that's a really good song. That's wow, a really yeah, good song. And I think that's part of the Beatles too. Is a, is the finding a Beatles song that you love that you didn't really even know about or. You knew you had heard a couple times, but you revisit it. In this case, you hadn't heard this song. And this is the type of song that a lot of people come to late or that they, they come to by just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to an entire album now. Uh, this was from A Hard Day's Night. So if mm-hmm. somebody decides I'm going to listen to A Hard Day's Night, this song is one of the types that might stick out to them. Did you see, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but could you see the comparison with The Battle Girl? Oh, absolutely. No, mm-hmm. absolutely. Because um, that that's, you know... About a girl is one that it sticks out for Nirvana because it's very like you definitely can pinpoint the Beatles influence and like oh like mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain and this group can go pop and like you see that and then if you compare it 
and I wouldn't have guessed like this version is what he was kind of influenced by by but like of the Beatles. But you definitely can hear that, and I kind of like it because it has. It's not like so boy band, which I'll I'll be quite honest, I mm-hmm. am not a fan of that era. Like they, it's good melodies, but like that one just really doesn't hit to me. So I, I'm kind of surprised in a good way that like that's a song that like I really jam to. And it's not like, oh, I feel like this is for, you know, a 10 or 12 year old girl. Like I like <laughs> it now as a grown man. So yeah. like, it's a good find. I, 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 yeah. I can't veto it. I'm glad you shared that. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And this was from 1964. So one of the reasons why I put it here and it stood out to me, because I think that this was a, uh, just the time period, like this was a, one of those, like a good example of the Beatles showing that they could delve into more interesting territory in those early days. Mm. So people were used to one sound and then they got something like this and it was like, it's a little more moody. There's, there's minor chords and then it goes to major. So minor key and major key, it kind of flip flops between the two. But so this was like a more minor key type of sound in an early song, which is, which I think is interesting. As far as the songwriting goes, so Paul McCartney wrote this, and it's one of his first real personal songs that he wrote. And so he uh, he uh, had dated for a few years Jane Asher, who was a model, and Paul was with her for a few years. Um, he wrote this while on vacation with Jane, Ringo, and his girlfriend, Maureen Cox. And he and Jane, his uh, Paul's girlfriend at the time, spent a lot of time apart because of their careers and everything. And so when they were on vacation, Paul wrote this, and this song's about them, about basically what Paul describes as future nostalgia. It's the point of view of the future, but he's saying that we're going to look back at this time and remember this. Someday when we're dreaming, deep in love, not a lot to say, then we will remember things we said today paul takes a lot of pride in like how he kind of twisted uh, it was a detour from a lot of his usual songwriting as far as perspective goes yeah and what he called future nostalgia so essentially he was kind of longing for jane asher while they were together okay and that's kind of what the song's about um he ended up getting engaged to her in 1967 but they broke up the following year and then that was right before he met linda but so this is like a really personal early Paul song, and you can really see Paul's emotions if you delve into the lyrics and know what the song's about. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I picked this too, Jeremy. No, I think it's a great choice. I like the point you made. Um, it showed, which it's hard to question, like the talent that you would see in the experimental phase that you would get a, a few years later on from the Beatles that they showed that range in those early era Beatles as well. So mm-hmm. I do like that point. Um, and I agree with you. And I think it's, it's a, it's a different, unique and interesting choice. And you, you backed it like no veto. Oh man. Like, it hits Yeah. It. That means a lot to me. I, I really appreciate it. And yeah, just the, how the song sounds too. This is like to be the last point that I make about this song, but like just an interesting vocal melody and just like the bridge. So he goes like, I'm just the lucky kind Love to hear you say that love is love And though we may be blind Love is here to stay And that's enough to 
make you mine. So the way he says, like, love is love, like, it's kind of just like little, like, he's playing with vocal melody there. And that's something that really sticks out to me is that whole, like, playing with melody, the harmonies. We see those standard, wonderful Beatle harmonies. Uh, the great key changes from major to minor. Like to me, like this song, it's all there as far as what they're going to become. And for that, Things We Said Today, our fifth essential Beatles song. I think it's a, it's a great choice, a great closing choice too. All right. Thank you. I thought I was going to get vetoed and I did have an honorable mention. I'll say well, one honorable mention, but I had another, I had a backup Paul song in anticipation of that getting vetoed. So... <laughs> oh okay um, yeah so so is there anything that you highly considered Jeremy, going into yeah this? getting better so that's on sergeant peppers mm-hmm. and i think that was a song that was later on in the beatles but one of those songs that you could kind of get the influence of all of them and i think a big part of and we've been discussing it on this episode of the beatles one of those essential things you need to know is the lennon mccartney songwriting duo but also the contrast and then just in that song i got to admit it's getting better a little better all the time that's paul and then with john can't get nowhere and like Mm -hmm. i I think that contrast like sums up them but also john being really real and you know talking about how um he was a violent person and violent toward women and you know we don't condone that and that's awful but him admitting that on a song and talking about he's changing, he's changing his ways and, you know, talking about he, you know, and John will later comment on that and say, you know, I was a really violent person. And I think that's why I love peace so much now, because I've seen like being a violent person and I want to, I want to bring peace. And I want to bring love. So I think also to kind of as heavy as that is, but to admit that on a song and a popular song like that, I think that's also a big thing too, but getting better was the one. If you would have taken Eleanor Rigby or while my guitar gently weeps, getting better would have been on the list for me. Yeah, it's a good one. It's one of my favorites from Sgt. Peppers uh, as well, for sure. Uh, my, my backup Paul song, if you would have vetoed things we said today, um, I was going to go to Hey Jude. A lot of the reason is because of how the song came about, what it's about to me. It speaks to just like these dynamics and it shows that John and Paul were actually like brothers, brothers mm-hmm. who fought, but they were close. And this Hey Jude's a song that means a lot to Paul and to John. Paul yeah. wrote it. But so for those who don't know, Paul wrote this for Julian Lennon to comfort him during John and Cynthia's divorce. Because Paul was like a what they described as a jolly uncle to Julian. Yeah. And so he wrote this he wrote Hey Jude. It was originally called Hey Jules, but John uh, Paul changed it to make it more universal. But he so he wrote this to comfort Julian Lennon. And John and Cynthia were both really touched by the song, too. Like, John looked at it as Paul being okay with his relationship with yeah. Yoko. So yeah. when he says, like, remember to let her into your heart. I mean, I think he's speaking to Julian there mm, to give yeah. Yoko a chance. But that's almost like Paul co-signing and being okay with John and Yoko's relationship. And so John was, like, touched by that. <laughs> no, <laughs> like he no. Felt, so John looks at the, hey, Jude is about him. When it's probably more so for Julian, but in some ways it probably is uh, for John as well. So just band dynamics and all that. Song's a little long, but I don't know. I just, hey Jude, I really strongly consider it. I'm glad you brought that because I was going to ask you, is this list a crime? You think it would be considered a crime? Because I feel like 
for a group that has so many songs, if there is one signature song, I think Hey Jude probably is it, if I had yeah. to choose, like their signature song. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, would that be, Is are we crazy for not putting it on the list? But it's I'm an glad essential, you... but it's, you know, it's not our top five essentials. It's not the first yeah. five. It's just five, right? Because I think, I think a lot of people would say, you know, Hey Jude, like you got to, oh, essential or great, like Hey Jude. I, I don't look at it that, I do love the meaning though. And I agree with you. It's mm-hmm. a fascinating song. And I think. I'm glad you brought that up because the Paul John dynamic is fascinating. And yeah. maybe the most fascinating of it all is I think a lot of people do feel like they were rivals. And maybe they were com- rivals in a way, like competitive with each other, I should say. Yeah. And I'm not going to take, in my opinion, did Paul not do some stuff that made it look like that? I think especially when John was killed and his reaction to it wasn't like the best reaction. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I look at Paul with that that kind of adds to like, well, how close were you? When people say that people can look in that and be like, well, how tight were you? But in the end, I think you're right. There is a brotherly bond with all four of them, Absolutely, but definitely with Paul and John too. When you go through something like that with somebody there, there is natural resentment and rivalry that forms, but there's also that love and bond. And to me, this is an example of that love was there. John was touched by this song. Paul was close with John's kids. Like, you know, so it was complicated with them, you know, um, it was very complicated with them. And I think this is a really good example. If you watch the get back documentary, you can see that Paul is actually the one that almost sticks up for Yoko being there in the studio. Mm-hmm. Paul lets everybody know like, you know what? John's in love. Yoko obviously does something to help him. John wants her here. So she's going to be here. And I think we just have to be okay with that. Like, it's fine that she's here. So it was interesting that Paul actually, like, stood up for Yoko's presence yeah. at the studio. Yeah. No, um, and you're right. Um, I, you know, seeing so many things that Julian said that for a while, he saw Paul more than he did see yeah. John. So, you know, like, mm-hmm. to say that. And you bring up another great point. There's so many, you know, we could go for, we're not going to, for people listening, we could go for hours because there's so many fascinating <laughs> dynamics, but I yeah. think one of the big things that has hit me, and even I'm like the podcast you're wrong about talked about, is mm-hmm. for so long, people in my parents' generation who were alive, I would ask them, how, why did the Beatles break up? Yoko, Yoko, Yoko. That became a statement, a stigma. Yeah. Oh, like she's a Yoko. You know, these guys are two best friends, and one guy gets a girlfriend. She's a Yoko, and really, just how wrong that was then and now, yep. and how just misguided and based in really like sexist and racist tones, really toward Yoko. And I feel like a lot of people owe Yoko an apology, honestly, absolutely, and how she's like portrayed and looked at and. That's kind of why I liked the getting better. Like, I picked that because, you know, it was like, oh, Yoko took our great, innocent John. I can't judge any person, right? I I can't. But John, in that song, shows, like, hey, he was a very flawed guy. And Yoko kind of helped to bring that peaceful nature into him. Mm -hmm. So, like, instead of critiquing and using those bad terms to talk about Yoko, we should talk about her in a much more positive light. And, you know, so I'm glad you brought up Paul defending Yoko being there because, I mean, we're going on, you know, what, 55 years of her getting slammed for no reason. Exactly. Exactly. That's well said. That's such a great point. So 
Getting Better and Hey Jude, honorable mentions, uh, not on our Five Essential Beatles songs. This probably at some point, I would say, down the line in the future, maybe another Beatles episode. Yeah, <laughs> probably warrants yeah. another episode. Uh, but right now, uh, our Five Essential Beatles songs is chosen by myself and Jeremy. Help, Eleanor Rigby, Here Comes the Sun, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and Things We Said Today. Before we get out of here, Jeremy, I had teased a question mm-hmm. that I wanted to ask you. So this pertains to the Beatles, but also just a lot of things in pop culture and sports, especially, that I'm just I'm fascinated by this. So I want to ask you, we're seeing it. So we've seen it with the Beatles right now. We're big sports fans. So we're seeing it right now, I think, with like Caleb Williams from USC. We've seen it with like LeBron, Bryce Harper. So why does it seem like people tend to be really put off when other people say that something is good or might be good? So like when they hear like, oh, this thing's great. Why is the reaction to, oh, we'll see about that and try to prove it wrong? Like, where does that come from? Um, I feel like we as as people, as society, we want to claim ownership. We want to discover it. We want to feel like, hey, we found this artist, this movie, this show, this athlete, my favorite team. Like, we want to have it. And I feel like naturally, and for me, with a lot of things, but definitely with the Beatles, I'm, I, was, I said it, I was guilty of it too. When it's just everyone's automatically just saying they're the best, they're the best, you get resentful being like, wait, what? Like, no. Like, you get contrarian almost like yeah. because it's like everyone just says that. And it's like, well, that's not my reality. And I think that's, honestly, to think about it now, a little part of it too, we all have different realities. We all have different cultures and different ways we grow up. So, you know, for me, Motown was always in my house and mm-hmm. how that sounded. And Ray Charles and, you know, like those f- figures, Little Richard, like, so those were like the geniuses that influenced pop culture for me. But that doesn't take away that the Beatles were that for you. And I think a lot of times we don't think that. It's just like, well, that's not what I know, so I'm going to push against that. No, yeah. it's wrong. No, that can't be. Instead of just sitting back. And honestly, two things can be true. All those people were geniuses, and all those people transformed pop music. Or Bryce Harper is a great player, and so was this player in the past, or yeah, this so other was Mike player. Trout. Like, yeah, you, you can't. You don't have to compare the right. Right. Or it's. But I just always find it fascinating that that seems to be a kind of a knee jerk reaction for a lot of people. If I, if they're told like, oh, you're in California, you should try In and Out Burger, and then they go in, and if it's not the best burger they've ever had in their lives, then they say, oh. I think it's overrated. But then I asked the question, did you like it? And they're like, yeah, it was good. And like, then why does it matter if it's overrated? True. true. You know, it's like, if you liked it, then what, why do you, why did, not you, Jeremy, but like mm-hmm. the universal you, if you liked it, why did you let other people's opinions of it make you look at it in a negative light if you still liked it? And that's what always fascinates me. I think we saw that with like the whole Jordan LeBron debate. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of Jordan fans, which I include myself in that, heard about LeBron coming up when he was in high school and he was saying, oh, this could be like the next great player. This could be the next Jordan. So immediately they pushed back and were like, nope, Jordan's Jordan. Right. I'm going to, and now I've decided to not like this LeBron guy, no matter what. Fast forward 22 years, LeBron's arguably one of the two best players ever. 
he still gets criticized because people had the nerve to compare him to Michael Jordan, even though he lived up to it. He's probably better than most people even thought he would be. But Mm -hmm. the fact that he was compared to something that people already loved, resentment right off the top. And the thing is, you can go back in time. It's always happened. You know, we can look at it. If you listen to the Nixon tapes and Elvis Presley comes to the White House and there's that jealousy, like Elvis, like in Nixon, they're slamming the Beatles and they don't like the Beatles. And that's actually with Elvis. But a lot of people back then were hating on the Beatles because they loved Elvis. So then they couldn't give the Beatles props, you know. So it shows like it's always kind of been there. And I think it goes to, you know, nostalgia part of it. And it's like, oh, this is our time, too. Like, this is like you're knocking my time by saying this new thing is better. We don't want that. So we're going to push <laughs> against that. But it's it is interesting, you know, um, so people can know, like, we love pop culture, like the whole past and present and future. Yeah. So I personally can say I know you mentioned that last week that you were going to take your niece to see the Taylor Swift movie. Yep. And one thing that I saw that I loved was Beyonce going to the premiere and her and Taylor bonding because a lot of people try to divide their two pop culture icons. Right. To me, the two biggest music acts of the 21st century are those two. And a lot of people have Beyonce or T-Swift, including like Kanye, trying to divide and separate and it's like, I love that they showed you don't need to do that. Celebrate all great artistry, all great music. Celebrate these two women who are, you know, you have a niece who you took. I have a young niece who likes them. And it's like, she's influencing these younger women. They, they both are that, hey, you can be what you want to be. And you can take a backseat to anyone. Why do we have to try to divide them up? So it, it's good lessons for myself. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I have to work on that too, but like, we shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, that's well said. It's just always been fascinating to me. So yeah, we're fans of the Beatles and Motown and girl groups and LeBron and Michael Jordan and Taylor Swift and Beyonce. We celebrate them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) And In-N-Out Burger and Five Guys and uh, Shake Shack. (laughs) So yeah, I thought you'd be the guy to ask. That's always just been fascinating to me, so... Yeah, so thanks for that. Uh, So before we get out of here, what do we got on tap for next episode? Jeremy, that's your topic. You're the host, the bus driver. I'm going with the guy who, to me, is the Michael Jordan of comedy, and that's Mr. Eddie Murphy, and looking at his essential movies. And I think people will think it's easy and chalk, but I'm here to say I, I think... I know what I'm thinking, and probably I have a feeling of what Thomas is Maybe. thinking, that it may not be as chalk as people think. And uh, mm-hmm. I think Eddie Murphy is just one of those forces that, like, you know, kind of like the way the Beatles are. Anything with Eddie Murphy, I'm fascinated by because he is such a fascinating figure. And he's still here, but he's kind of got, like, a mythic thing to him because just his dominance and like the same way I look at like Paul McCartney and Ringo they're still alive but they're like a mythic thing to them and Eddie Murphy has that for me in comedy so I'm pumped for essential Eddie Murphy movies yeah so am I this was a great choice I have a couple more re- Eddie Murphy rewatches that I want to I want to reassess a couple of mo- uh, movies I think uh just to make sure 
uh, I have I have those in my brain when we do this episode. I'm so very much looking forward to it. Thank you, Jeremy. As always, this was a fun episode. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Thomas. It, it was really good to kind of reevaluate and reassess my fandom with the Beatles and having to check myself and give them a lot more props <laughs> than I usually do. I'm yeah, glad and I, I introduced it. you to a, a new Beatles song that you like. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Awesome. All right. So for Jeremy Dove, I'm Thomas Senna. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture 5. So long, everybody. Peace. some such.